0: he was on his way uh, from the city of Corfu to the village of uh, to, to his village and along the way he was joined by some other young people unfortunately for him this was not very good company and we have to St. Paul talks to all the Christians and especially to the young people to be very aware of the company that we keep so as they were walking along They saw some other young teenagers bringing flour from the mill. So some of these kids said, Look, you know, let's get this from them. Let's steal it and take it to our homes. So Stephanos, the name of the, you know, nice youth, he says, No, this is a sin. You know, we can't do this. Even if nobody's looking at us, we're not going to escape divine justice. They said, Now, you know, you don't have to do this. So they ignored him. They attacked the young kids, and they took their flower. And, of course, the other young boys, they went home, and they told their parents who called the chief of police, you know, and uh, he called the troopers. And after a little while, the only one apprehended was Stephanos. He explained to them that, I didn't do this. I was with them, but I really did not do it. I told him not to do this. And they said, Yeah, right. You see? So, unfortunately, sometimes we are labeled according to the people that we are with. So, the next day, there's court, and uh, he's found guilty. And they give him, now, this is 1530. Uh, This is, you know, Corfu is under Venice, Venetian rule. And they give him a choice uh, to either cut his hands off or take his eyes out. Anyway, he said, well, uh, he was devastated, of course, but at least if I have my hands, I'll be able to do something, beg, you know, I'll do something. So he said, okay, take my eyes out. So totally devastated, uh, along with his mother, they took the long way to go to this miraculous icon of the church in this village in Cassiopeia. There was a some cells there for monks, and one of the caretaker monks gave them a place to stay. And during the night, his mother was exhausted. She fell asleep right away. has also slept, and then he had some kind of a vision actually he felt some hands touching him and he opened his eyes and he sees this woman dressed in gold in gold vestments this bright woman in front of him touches his eyes and then she disappears and instantly He begins to see lights. He begins to see candles in the church. She, you know, he says, Mom, Mom, I can see. Go back to sleep. You're just dreaming. Go back to sleep. Mom, I can really see. So she gets up. She lights up a couple candles. And she sees in the place of his, you know, vacant holes where the eyes used to be. there are two beautiful blue eyes. Now, keep in mind, but the last eyes were brown. They rung the bells. This was a great miracle. You know, the monk takes Stephanos. Uh, actually, he, the monk went all the way to the city and he told, you know, the governor this, and he took the the governor took the consul members of the city, brought him to Stephanos, and they witnessed this entire miracle. But there was a little bit of doubt. You know, the governor, uh, Simon Bywes, he couldn't, there was some doubt, and he goes back to, you know, this butcher guy who took the eyes out, I guess the executioner, and he says, did you really take this kid's eyes out? He says, yes, I did. I still have them. You know, water penny, they're still in water. And he goes and brings them in front of him, and there are brown eyes, and the young man's eyes were blue. What a great miracle from the Theotokos, of course, they gave him a lot of gifts, and uh, you know this miracle is known uh, in this island, which is the island of Saint Spiridon. You know his intact body is there, just like in San Francisco. I had the great blessing of visiting Saint John Maximovich, You know who uh, is the saint of San Francisco and the Americas, uh, and his body is incorrupt. In his holy church, there. In one of the other parishes, uh, Saint George had a wonderful experience with the youth of that church. I was totally impressed. 10-15 very young people who are writing articles. Uh, you know, they are writing newsletters, not just for their parish, but you know, the entire California. Sending them around, their writings. So You know, are very lofty, and uh, it is a great example, you know, for a lot of parishes to follow. Just a, a very, very spiritual community. I was, you know, totally impressed, and we hope to see this in a lot of other parishes. Thank God. We spoke briefly there about. Uh, the Gnosticism, I think we touched on this briefly about the Da Vinci Code. Did we say anything about this a couple of weeks ago? Father Muin Hanna, who is the presbyter there, uh, great priest, uh, he mentioned to me to say a few things. And, of course, this book is a fiction. But what makes it very dangerous is it states in the beginning that a lot of the historical our uh, evidence here is factual, and in the beginning of his facts, uh, you know, this author who is basically very anti-church, you know, very anti-Christian. I must say, uh, you know, following in the footsteps of Kanzazaki's, along the same lines about uh, Christ having a family and having, and we'll talk a little bit about this later. Uh, he states that uh, there's really no evidence in the church uh, that any Christians in the first fourth centuries, they consider Christ any more than a prophet or a human being. So right from the beginning, he's denying the divinity of Christ. And in the middle of this book, this book is full of Gnosticism, which is simply knowledge, knowledge, knowledge it's knowledge of this world and St. Paul and St. Peter talks about this false knowledge in the scriptures and unfortunately 44 million people and most of them Christians are reading this book in this country, in Europe and the people who read this book unfortunately they are people of the flesh because only fleshly people would even allow their minds to think this nonsense. Nonsense. And God talks about these people in Genesis when he says, My spirit will no longer abide in these people, for they have become flesh. And we have to be very careful because, you know, this is all around us. If you travel a little bit, you hear things that are unimaginable. And we see in Timothy one, where St. Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter days, in the last days, as we progress towards the end, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, There are demonic spirits out there that are actually being allowed by who? By God. God allows this. We mentioned it many times before. God gives people over to a spirit of falsehood because they desire a false lifestyle. Seducing spirits and doctrines of devils having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So basically what happens is when we stop being spiritual people and we only become people of ethics good nice people, good good tissues people, you know that kind of thing, you know eventually that does not help us because if we don't have the spirit of God we will be deceived you'll be surprised how many Greek Orthodox follow this new Jezebel called Vasula Anybody heard of that name? Father Nicholas has. Okay. Vasula is an Orthodox. She tells in her books, she states in her books that she is Greek Orthodox. That's what she says in her periodicals. She states in her books that she had a Greek Orthodox baptism and this is how she deceives people. Of course she's Catholic. She, she totally accepts the Pope. And she wants to unite both faiths. She wants Orthodoxy to surrender to the Pope. But she calls herself in her writings Greek Orthodox. Vasula. Christ appeared to her and told her that your name is going to be Vasula. Not your baptismal name. I forget that name. It's a good, a nice name, but she says Christ told her that, you know, you're going to be called Vasula, And uh, she is in the same lines as Stefan, as all the Pentecostals. There's a lot of signs and demonic works in her gatherings. There's thousands of people that are following her, not only here in the United States, eight thousand, ten thousand in Venezuela. She's all over the world. All over the world. When she's preaching, the sun dances in the sky. You know, it goes back and forth. And, you know, this is this is one hundred percent spiritism. It's the same the same visions that we had in Metzagori, in Yugoslavia. Same visions. Where you have this is spiritism. It's it's work of the demons, where actually her face changes and becomes the face of Christ, you see. And the only way this energy can go through is if they hold hands, because this is created energy. It's not the Spirit of God. But you see, if we don't have, if we don't have a little bit of knowledge, if we're not close to a spiritual father, If we are marginal orthodox, we will definitely be deceived. This is what's coming, and this is very prevalent. So, you know, this is, when I was in Los Angeles, she was speaking, and there was hundreds of people, hundreds of Greek orthodox, you know, around her. There there are dozens of circles in large cities that are, are holding Bible studies, okay, And most of them are Greek Orthodox because of the name Vasula. Uh, I guess she was born from Greek parents in Egypt. So these are the things that we are talking about. We do need to know doctrine. We We do need to know, you know, to discern. Because, you know, without this small discernment, we will have great difficulty. So heresy is not something innocuous when you know when uh, the da vinci code is full of heresy this is not seen by all these millions of christians who are reading this book a bestseller translated in 22 languages along with harry potter and all these different occultic books heresy is an invention an innovation of demons, and the Holy Spirit cannot be present in heretical factions. You know, the teachings of heresy are carnal, human, and demonic. So sometimes we hear people who are marginal orthodox, and sometimes not only lay people, you know, even priests. They state that, well, we're almost, they're almost like us. You know, we're, we're almost the same. Oh, we believe in Christ, you believe in Christ, you know, uh, we believe in the Trinity. We're almost the same. Unfortunately, when we speak like this, this is a pathetic position. When we come to this pathetic position, rather, this shows that we have we stop having a relationship with the Orthodox Church of the saints, the martyrs, and the apostles. So, when, when St. Gregory the theologian, 1600 years ago, 1700 years ago, was stating that anybody who does not accept the Theotokos, anyone who does not accept the Virgin Mary, S. Theotokos is separated from God. So he caught a lot of the reformers centuries before. Nestorius refused to call the Virgin Mary, the Panagia, Theotokos. He wanted to call her Christotokos. He was separated from God. So Today we'll concentrate a little bit more on the ever-virginity of the Theotokos, which was never doubted by the church, except in a couple of cases, for the first 1,600 years. And as we mentioned, you know, if we can trust the Cappadocian Fathers, the Nicene Fathers, if we can trust St. Athanasius to filter the books of the New Testament, because many Gnostic books, Apocrypha Gospels were floating around, if we can trust him and his contemporary saintly fathers to give us the New Testament, because the Church gave us the New Testament, If we can trust them to give us the New Testament, then how can we not trust them when they all use the term Theotokos? Our church fathers state that that term, Theotokos, the birth giver of God, it actually encompasses the entire entire plan of God. It encompasses God's divine economy. Because if we get used to this term, the Theotokos, it's not a difficult word. You know, we have many Greek words in the English vocabulary. You know, everybody can say Baklava and uh, Gyros. You know, Theotokos. This term is very powerful. Because. It leaves no question whatsoever about this child of Bethlehem that we sing about in Christmas carols. It leaves no doubt whatsoever about the Jesus of Nazareth. No doubt. Who is the child of the Holy Night? The child of Bethlehem? Well, if his mother is defined and called the theotokos, the birth giver of God, that her son is God. So even a, not a ten-year-old or a nine-year-old, but a five-year-old child knows who Christ is. Christ is God. Because his mother is the theotokos, the birth giver of God. And not the mother of God. In Greek that's theomitor and mother of the Lord is Kyriotokos and St. Paul exple- explains this and expresses this beautifully actually a Holy Spirit through St. Paul in 3 Timothy 16 St. Paul says without any doubt great is the mystery of Ephsevia in Greek and Ephsevia is godliness and asevia was another name of christianity so saint paul is stating that the mystery of christianity is great without any doubt and what is this mystery god the second person of the holy trinity god was manifested in the flesh justified in the spirit what justified Christ? How was he justified in the Spirit? He was justified during Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And he was seen by angels. And it was mentioned through these classes the angels are very much indebted to the Theotokos and to the humans in general because this was the first time that they saw that God was Trinity, and this was the first time that they saw God in Jesus Christ. God was manifested. He appeared in the flesh. So the term Theotokos is a very beloved Orthodox term and a great antiseptic, a great spiritual antibiotic against the contamination of the anti-Christian teachings And when we keep this teaching constantly in our Sunday school programs, even if the kids are 2, 3, 4, 5 years old, Christ is God. Who is Jesus Christ? Christ is God. This is going to be the greatest temptations of the days to come. You know, the divinity of Christ is going to be modeled. One of the verses that most of the Protestants and a lot of the non-Orthodox trip on is the verse that states that and Joseph knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son okay. in other words the way they interpret it is Joseph and this is what it means Joseph had no relations with her Till she had brought forth her firstborn son. So they use this verse to say, you see, it says here that he had no relations with her before Christ was born, which means that he must have had relations after. But why are they assuming here? How can they assume? They don't assume in any other verses When we say, uh, you know, uh, we call the Virgin Mary the Pheotokos, they'll ask you, where is that in the Scriptures? Well, where is it in the Scriptures that it says that he had a relationship with her afterwards? It doesn't say that. But you see, they use what is advantageous to support their blasphemy and heresy. And Joseph knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And Father Nicholas has translated a great book on this that was very helpful to me early on in my struggles. And at some point, would like to publish it. Uh, This, until, in the Greek language and in the scriptures, it does not necessarily mean that it had to take place in the future. This is false reasoning. And how do we prove this? By using the scriptures. We will interpret script- scripture, we will interpret scripture by scripture. And we go to Genesis 28:15. God is speaking to Jacob and he tells Jacob, I will not abandon thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee. (laughs) So are we to assume that after God fulfills his promises to Jacob, then he's going to abandon him? The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So are we to assume that after this happens, and Christ will no longer be allowed to sit at the right hand of the Father? No. So this until does not necessarily show a future continuance of this, of this action. In Matthew 28.20, And lo, I'm with you always till the end of the age. Is Christ going to stop being with us, you know, in paradise? At the end of this world? Of course not. And in Psalm 72, 7, in his days, meaning the Messiah, justice and peace shall flourish until the moon endureth. So what? After the moon burns up, and that's going to happen at the end of the age, the sun, the earth, everything will burn up. The entire universe will burn up. St. Peter talks about this, talks about the elements will melt in their own heat. And Father Athanasios, he interprets and he states that the nuclear energy enclosed in the elements of the universe will be unleashed and the whole universe will actually burn up like a church. It will melt in heat and it will become the kingdom of God. A new heaven and a new earth. So, it says here that uh, in his days justice and peace shall flourish until the moon endures. Does that mean that it will stop after the moon is finished? Of course not. So, and I don't want to belabor the point, but, and Joseph knew her not until. That means he never had any intentions of knowing her. If Christ is her firstborn son... So that means that she also has other ones. Okay. So we cannot assume these things uh, because the scripture does not say their firstborn son. You see, if they, if, if they had other children together, then the scripture would say their firstborn son if they were husband and wife. Uh, It states her firstborn son. But the firstborn in Scripture is the firstborn not as opposed to other siblings. The firstborn in Scripture means the first one who opens the womb was to be dedicated to God. You know, the first one who opens the womb of the mother. And we see that in Exodus 13:2 Sanctify me, every firstborn who opens up the womb. And in Numbers 3:12, we have the same verse. So the Panagia did not have any other children. <clears throat> Christ did not have any other brothers. He did not need any other brothers. He has all of us as his brothers. And in the Greek, the word adelphos, because again, a lot of the non-Orthodox, they read the scriptures. And because they take scriptures out of context and without the help of the church, they read in Mark 3.32, in Matthew 12.47, in Luke 8.21, that the brothers of Jesus came to see him, his mother and his brothers. So automatically they assume that the Panagia had other children. But in Greek, the word adelphos is very specific. And it means when people are uh, Adelphi, in Greek Adelphos, it simply means two human beings who came out of the same womb, Delphi or Delphi. The literal uh, translation of Delphi is the womb of the earth. It was like the center of the earth what Pythia was, and she was given all these, uh, she was a great sorceress, you know, of the uh, ancient Greece. And Delphi, or Delphi, means womb, the center of the earth. And Adelphi means those siblings, people who came out of the same womb, meaning people who have the same mother. However, this word does not exist in Aramaic in our, our make, there's no word for cousin or nephew or relative. Everyone is called brothers. We see this when in Genesis 3:18, Abraham has a discussion with his nephew Lot. What happens? Their servants are increasing, and they are beginning to having some kind of disagreements between the servants. And Abraham. Being the uncle, he tells his nephew, look, let's not, you know, uh, affect our love for each other. Let's separate. Choose whichever area you want. I go the one way, you go the other, so we can keep our friendship and our love. And Lot took, you know, the very, very fertile plain of Sodom. You see? Where... Abraham stayed in the mountains. <laughs> and in Genesis 3:18, Abraham and Lot are called brothers, where Lot is, in fact, the nephew. The same thing: Jacob calls his father-in-law, Laban, who did not treat him very well, by the way, they are called brothers. Back then, second cousins or first cousins were allowed to marry. And I think in some of the traditions, even today in Syria, that's still permissible. As long as they're not first cousins from the paternal side, you see, if they're first cousins from the maternal side, then if I'm not mistaken, you know, that's allowed. So Jacob and Laban are called brothers in Genesis 28-28. In Chronicles 9.6, Hazabiah and his brothers, men of valor, 1,700. I don't think he had that many brothers. These are relatives. In 4 Kings 13.14, speaks about 42 brothers of Eliezer. So, the point is that In the scriptures, the word brother means relative, nephew, cousins, and not necessarily siblings that came from the same mother. So from this we see that the Virgin Mary did not need to have any more children because she gave birth to the Son of Righteousness. So by the help of the book that Father Nicholas translated, uh, we'll summarize some of these great reasons. And these are apologetics that you should be able to use. You should know these things by now. We spoke about these things 13, 14 years ago when some of our dear brothers here, they were being pulled away by some Pentecostal groups. And we had five, six studies in here. And this is what we started on. And, you know, once you do this... uh, you know, once you do this study with them and you begin with this, then you shake their ground and then they become open-minded and then you can speak to them. Usually, when you speak to, you know, people who are not orthodox, you know, they want, they they need, they will speak about the scripture. When I was in... Uh, you know, when I was in Canada and a young man, 17 years old, met a girlfriend who was Pentecostal and of course, lo and behold, six months later he was ready to change his faith and become Pentecostal. You know, Greek Orthodox kid in Toronto. So, you know, I didn't have all these notes with him, but I remember a few things and when we sat down, we opened the scriptures and the first question I asked was, excuse me, do you have any bishops in your church? No. Well, right here, the scriptures, the Bible, St. Paul talks about bishops, overseers. In Greek, that means episcopus. Episcopus in Greek is bishop. Do you have any of those? No. Um, here, in, uh, in the Old Testament, it talks that from daybreak until nighttime, great will be my name in the nations, and incense will be offered in my In my house, something like that, I, I forget the verse right now. Do you have incense in your church? No. So you just basically point out six, seven, eight, nine, ten things that they don't have, and you say, "Well, there's something missing. Do you want to hear more?" And then you begin to talk, okay, and you don't spend more than an hour, an hour and a half. It's a mistake to stay there for hours. You spent an hour. Then you go back, prepare a little bit more, have a second meeting. You know, it is a mistake. Some uh, you know, Greek fellow in Greece, he went in the home of uh, two Jehovah's Witnesses who were listening, and he spent nine hours at the first meeting. And the wife said, Tell this guy not to ever show up again. Get rid of this guy. Well, so you go, you spend an hour, an hour and a half, and say, Thank you, this was enough for now. I'll leave. So let's summarize some of these reasons. In the scriptures we see that behold, you shall conceive in your womb and give birth to a son. The angel is telling this to the most holy Theotokos. And she says how can this be? How shall this be for I know no men? Now remember she's in a home of Joseph if she was truly betrothed and soon to be married to Joseph what would be you know the logical train of thought behold you shall conceive in the future and you shall give birth to a son the logical train of thought would be yes sometime in the future Joseph and I Will have a child. That's wonderful. Answer The Theotokos states How shall this be for I know no men? In other words, this man in here is not my man in that sense. Okay. Uh, this is simply a guardian because I need to be protected, because he needed to serve this great mystery of God's incarnation to help bypass her through the scrutiny of the Pharisees if they would find her pregnant they would certainly never believe of a virgin birth they would stone her and that's why before the birth and while Joseph is having great doubts he comes back when uh, when year comes back and he sees her pregnant. He's having great doubts. The devil is there, telling him all kinds of things. Look, use me. You see that verse in uh, you know in his in salutations to strengthen Joseph at that point, and to let him know that there is absolutely no foul play. The angel says, Joseph do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. Okay. This is the only instance where she's called his wife to help him, to let him know that there's no third party involved. He's a human being. After the birth, now the angel constantly says, Joseph, wake up take the child and his mother. You see the separation? Go to Egypt. After four years, three years, Joseph, now take the child and his mother and go back to Nazareth or Bethlehem. And St. John of Chrysostom brings up this very... Argument. Now, in the scriptures, if we have the help, and believe me, I, you know, this knowledge may sound wonderful, but it's all ready for us. I didn't go to study all this, I didn't research all this. It's in our Orthodox books, it's in the depository of our church. The scriptures talk. The gospel talks about four brothers and sisters, at least two. But for those who know ancient Greek, the word passe is used instead of amphotere. If there were only two, the word would be amphotere. If it's more than two, then it's "base." So there's at least three sisters and four brothers. Now, if we really want to use a little bit of logic, and we'll use a little logic from time to time, and say, look, uh, seven children, and we don't see any of them born before the twelfth year of Christ. You remember when he was going to the temple? They were going to the temple. There was a feast day of Skinopeia, I believe, and they are going to the feast, there was, the children always ran up front, and, Joseph and the Theotokos thought, where well, he's running along with the rest of the children, hundreds of children running ahead, three days later they found him in the temple, in this whole conversation, there's no mention about any other children, so here, since they are, they easily assumed things. We can also assume that if the scripture says that there are no other children up to this point, then uh, if there were any other children, they must have been born after the twelfth year of Christ. Christ was crucified at the age of thirty-three. Uh, 33 at his crucifixion. Then the youngest, or the oldest child was at least 20. The one after that, 18, 16, 14, 12, 10. And the youngest one would be like Alexander, eight or nine. Okay. So here we have supposedly, all these children with a virgin Mary. But Christ on the cross tells John what? John, behold your mother. Go and live with John. What would happen to all these children? And how would this escape the apostolic fathers who they all speak about her ever virginity. Would it be that easy to to hide the fact that she had, you know, seven children, possibly 20 grandchildren for two, three, four generations and only a few generations later she's called ever virgin. So this is a very false teaching, and it came about by people who hate Christ, who hate the Panagia, and the first one, the first ones to mention these blasphemies for obvious reason, was those of the synagogue, who to this day they use profanities that I, we will not repeat for the Theotokos and Christ. For obvious reasons. The Holy Scripture considers virginity much higher than marriage. God sanctified marriage, of course. It's a holy mystery of our church. St. Paul says that the unwed strives to be holy both in body and spirit. Saint Paul says in seven thirty four, He who does not get married does better. Now I know that some of you here are, you know, ready to get married, okay? <laughs> uh, we're not against marriage, by no means. But St. Paul talks about a state that has more sacrifice. It is a state, the state of 100. In a gospel, we see that some follow Christ, some produce 30, 60, some 100. St. Paul says that it is good if they remain as I am, unmarried, because there's many temptations in marriage. And believe me, marriage is a cross. And women will be saved through childbearing. And today, when you have children, it is very difficult because we have a very, very unorthodox, very unchristian world that attacks the mind and the souls of the children from the time they are a year or two or three years old on television, in the public school system. And we need to be extremely careful. There's a a, a lot of uh, church schools that are being developed all through the country, and it's a very good thing because parents are very concerned So, virginity is the state before the fall. Again, people of the flesh cannot even imagine anybody in a a state of celibacy. Unfortunately, you need to have some spirituality to understand the state of virginity. And It is not easily accomplished by our own powers. It's accomplished by the grace of God. But it is the state before the fall. And if you ask me, why was Christ not married? Because he is the carrier of the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, there will be no marriage. Remember, I think, it was the Sadducees or, who approached him, and they tried to give this, you know, this uh, fictitious scenario about seven men who died and married the same woman, seven brothers. and after the first one died, left no children, so the second brother had to marry his widow to raise up children for the first brother. Okay. And at the very end, they asked him, Now, teacher, in uh, paradise, whose wife will she be? There'll be seven of them in there. Now, which one will be her husband? And he says, Blanaste, you are deluded because you do not know the scriptures. And that's what happens when we do not know, we we don't have a decent knowledge of the scriptures, it's easy to be deceived. And he says, in the kingdom of God, there will be no marriage. So, the monastics... Have this special grace of the New Testament, the grace of the Panagia, of the ever virgin, because she is the Tichos, the fortress of the virgins. She is the guardian of the virgins. She is the guardian of the Holy Mountain. And this is one of the gifts most beloved by Christ and the Theotokos. It's not just it's not a gift, it's actually a virtue. A gift, it's something that's given to us. You know, like the gift of priesthood. Something that's given to us. We don't have to do anything. Baptism, it's given to us. We don't have to do anything to be baptized. But virginity is a virtue. It takes our obedience, our work, and the grace of God. That's what constitutes a virtue. And it's a great virtue. And the Panagia, the most holy Theotokos, she is the ever virgin, the fortress of all virgins, of all monastics. And as we mentioned in the 44th Psalm, she is leading thousands of virgins to the virginal king. Her son, Christ our God. I
1: was just wondering, um, you found in the translation from the Aramaic to English um, that there was a problem with the brothers and sisters, with cousins, and things like that. Did you find anything with the word until, like even in the Hebrew language from, from the Old Testament and then for the, the New Testament? Like you were saying how um, in the beginning when the Virgin Mary, well, all the different examples, then you said how it was until, and then we assumed that that did you find a problem in the translation? Or you... No, the,
0: the translation is until, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty much the same, as long as, it's, it's until, and again, I think last week, or the week before I mentioned that, uh, you know, uh, Christ said in, in the Greek, menunia, menunia, uh, the Greek word, Christ did not, was not speaking in Greek, Christ was speaking in, in Aramaic, However, the evangelists, I believe, with the exception of Matthew, Matthew was written in Aramaic because he needed to he needed to evangelize you know the Jews, his own people. The other gospels were written in the original Greek, so they were not really written you know, in the Aramaic, so they were not translations. Now the Septuagint is a translation you know from the seventy, which is also God inspired, and the Septuagint was used by Saint Paul and the apostles in the early church, and not, you know, the uh, the Hebrew text. So, uh, yeah, I mentioned I simply mentioned a number of verses that states that the word "until" it does not necessarily mean that. If something didn't happen up to then, it must necessarily happen afterwards. Just like in uh, in the ark uh, after the flood, when, when the waters began to go down, you know, after a few months, uh, you know, the ark was flowing around. So Noah thought, well, let's send a crow out to see what happens if the crow doesn't come back that's a good sign that means it found places to stay well most likely it found a lot of food floating on the water so it never came back you know and it says the crow did not come back until the waters receded it never came back where the dove Came back because the dove could not sit on anything unclean. The dove looked around, said, "There's nothing I can put my feet here," so comes back to the ark. And that's why the dove is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And that's why when Christ, when He was throwing the objects of the merchants, He was taking them and throwing them on the floor, uh, overturning tables. When he came to the doves he didn't touch them because they were symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And he told the merchants, take your doves.
2: Te Doamne, pe preasfințitul nostru episcopestimie, pe care îl dăruiește Sfintelor tale biserici, În face întreg și-n spiț, înătos, îndelungat în zile, drept învățând cuvântul adevărului Tău. Dă-n-o, cu gură şi o inima slăvit şi-a cântat la cinţitul şi de mare cuvinţă numele Tău, Al Tatălui şi al Fiului şi al Sântului Acum şi și pururea şi veci, veţii veţii Să fie mirele Marelui Dumnezeu și Mântuitorului nostru, Iisus Hristos, cu voi cu
1: toți!
3: Iisus Hristos, cu voi toți! Că pomenindu pomenindu-i, iară și iar cu pace, Domnului să ne rugăm! citei de să ce sau adus și ce-l simt domnul Să ne mereu.
1: Oi
3: viitorul divin de neboul nostru, cel ce le a primit pe dântea în sfințu mai de ceruri, celul Într-un miros de bună mirească de Să ne trimită nouă Dumnezeu scurtar, Și darul Sfântului Duh să ne rugăm. Domne,
1: miluiescă!
3: Pentru ca să fim noi de tot nu-i cazul mânia, și nevoia Domnului să ne rugăm.
1: Domne,
3: Pără, mântuiește, miluiește cine ne pe noi, Dumnezeule, cu harul Tău
1: Doamne, miluiește
3: Ziua toată desăvârșită, în pace, Și fără de păcat la Domnul să cerem
1: Doamne În
3: cer de paste, credincioși, Păzitor al sufletelor și al grupurilor noastre, la Domnul să
1: celem!
3: Da, și stare e de păcatele și de greșalele noastre, la Domnul să
1: celem!
3: Da, Doamne! Cealaltă vieții noastre, În pace într-o pocăință, o o săvârșit la Domnul să cerem. Să știți, creștineți, vieții noastre, fără durere, ne-nfuntate în pace și răspuns bun la fricoșătoarea judecată a Lui Hristos să cerem. Unitatea toate credințe și împărtășirea Sfântului Duh pe noi ei și pe alții și și viața noastră lui Hristos Dumnezeu să o dăm
1: mereu
2: cine vreți pe noi să bune cu un fără de osândă Să cutezăm a te chema pe tine, Dumnezeul cel cel de să te-a zice.
1: Tatăl nostru care e sincerul, sfinteasca rintească-se numele Tău, Vie împărăția ta, faca se voia ta, Precum în cer, așa și pe pământ. Pâinea noastră ce-a spre da nouă astăzi, Cine iată
2: nouă greșoarele noastre, precum și noi dăm greșiților noștri, Și nu ne duce pe noi nispită, cine îi băvește de serviciuat. Că a ta este împărăția și puterea și slava, A Tatălui și a Fieiului și a Sfântului Duh, Acum și pururea și-n vecii vecii
1: nou. Amin. Bat it to